You're listening to Amphibicast. This week's episode of Amphibicast is sponsored by the Active Conservation Alliance. The Active Conservation Alliance is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization promoting ecosystem conservation and restoration, the sustainable use and the welfare for wildlife and human communities living in balance. With a special focus on dart frogs, many of the Alliance's efforts work towards the conservation and reintroduction of wild dendrobatids into their natural habitat. To get involved and to donate, please visit activeconservationalliance.org or follow the links in the show description. You can also text ACA to 61094. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, And this week, we're going to kind of kick off a short series that I wanted to do about artists, and specifically artists in the herp community, people who do art that is based on amphibians, reptiles, tarantulas, whatever. And uh, it's something that I've been looking to do for quite some time. And uh, my guest tonight is Ron Rundo. And uh, Ron does a very, very unique um, type of art. In addition to traditional art, he, he does many different things, but uh, he's also very, very adept at creating these natural replicas by hand of these naturalistic environments that he incorporates into uh, reptile enclosures. And they're, they're stunningly beautiful. And we're going to talk about that and some of Ron's inspirations and the, the process and really what someone looks for when it comes to creating a piece that really replicates nature almost exactly to the T. It's, I mean, I'm looking at some of his photographs and you'd never know that some of these were artificial based on just the detail and the quality. So we're going to get into all that, but of course the usual stuff, uh, thanks everyone for the five-star reviews. So a really nice five-star review recently. And, um, I want to thank, let me just pull it up right now. Uh, I want to thank Ranger 92 for the, the nice review. Um, yeah, th- this had to do with the Baltimore Aquarium. And uh, I do always want to give credit to the Baltimore Aquarium. It was a big influence on me growing up. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Inner Harbor when I was a kid. And uh, the National Aquarium in Baltimore was always a beautiful place. Amazing design. So um, uh, thanks, uh, Ranger92, for the review. I always appreciate that. And, of course, for everybody else you want to support the show, of course, five-star review goes a long way. If you're looking to uh, support the show in another way, feel free to become a patron on Patreon. Uh, I don't air ads for the show. I um, It's one of those things that I kind of refuse to do. Uh, I think that ads are detrimental to the process. I don't like them. And um, that does come at expense. And, uh, you know, again, just to defer the cost of the shows, being a patron is a great way to do so. You know, keeps me from having to air any kind of nonsense ads and whatnot. So uh, if you'd like to support the show, $5 a tier a month will get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And I've got tiers as low as a dollar a month if you want to just do a little something small. And of course, the link tree, follow that. You'll get a 10% discount off of an in-situ ecosystems vivarium. And you'll also find links to the merch store and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. But uh, enough about that. I want to get into it. Um, Ron, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Thank you for uh, coming to talk to me. Good. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, uh, Ron, I, I want to get into, there's so many things that I want to get into because the, the, the I mean, the artwork that you produce is, I mean, the traditional art, but also the, the, the escapes that you build. Um, I also also mention your, your website, snakescapes.com. Uh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. You, you do these full snake habitats, which are geared to, uh, Amazon basin boas, the stunningly beautiful species. And, um, I saw a lot of parallels between 
the aesthetics of what you build um, in a way that's also relatable to, to many of the dart frog keepers and people who do dart frog builds. But um, I, I want to get into all of that and the, the, the creative process and you know how you come up with these ideas. But uh, I was wondering if before we do that, you could kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Which came first, your interest in art or your interest in reptiles? And at what point did these two passions, like when did these things coalesce? Like how did you develop this this love for reptiles and incorporate it into your artwork? Well, I, I've been a hobbyist as far as the reptiles since I'm 10. And I've always been fascinated by snakes. So as time went on, I developed this ability to create, paint, and sculpt, and that sort of thing. And and as I was a hobbyist, and so slowly but surely, I started to, I wanted to recreate or create these really cool environments. You know, initially it was with fiberglass resins and stuff like that, but it didn't really work out so well until I found this stuff called epoxy. It's the same epoxy that they use in zoo and aquarium exhibits. And once I got my hands on that, man, I found that I could just sculpt, I could sculpt anything in it, with it, all the insane detail and, and just make a real, real natural looking habitat out of this epoxy. And you kind of came into this from an inspirational way. All right, just, just to give context. You got a lot of inspiration from the exhibits at the Bronx Zoo, and so did I. I mean, yes. I remember being a kid and looking at some of these exhibits, and recently the, the the Congo exhibit and also the Madagascar exhibits. When I would go into these enclosures and these exhibits in the zoo, my first thought wasn't always so much the animal. It was the exhibit itself. I wanted right. to know how it was made, what went into it. I mean, I'm like looking over the looking over the, you know, the, the side of the railing to see what's underneath it and trying to like look around corners and whatnot. Because to me, it was, it was fascinating. The amount of, of artistry and the planning, everything that went into this is amazing. I mean, you drew a lot of inspiration from places like this as well, right? There was the Bronx Zoo was, it was a big catalyst to you being able to find how to work with this epoxy, right? Oh, sure. The Bronx Zoo. And then also the Museum of Natural History how they had these taxidermied animals into these sculpted up, you know, enclosures. It, it, it was, it was wild. And I, and I always wanted to create something like that for my pets. I had fish at a time and I was always doing like cool aquascapes, but for the snake. Yeah. I was, it was the animal itself that got me inspired. And so through the years I was able to develop this method of application that, not only does it look cool, but the functionality of it. I mean, it's plastic. It keeps with the sterile environment that a lot of hobbyists are looking for, you know, but it's it's a plastic that in its form, which is like the consistency of peanut butter, you can sculpt it up and then paint it up. And then there it is. I think it's a beautiful way to exhibit these beautiful animals. It's such a unique media. I mean, it's, it's, I, I remember being a kid and thinking, you know what, like when I, when I grow up, I want to build these things and you know what, that never happened for me, <laughs> but, um, it, it definitely happened for you. Wh which species were you really targeting? I mean, no, I know that you're not an amphibian guy, you're, you're, a, um, a snake guy, but which species specifically, like, did you draw the inspiration to create these, um, 
these uh, enclosures for? It was the Amazon Basin Boa. And as a little kid in a book, I would see these things. I was just like fascinated by them. And you couldn't, in those days, you really couldn't find them in a pet store exactly. And, but in those days, they called it an emerald tree boa, not the Amazon basin boa, which we identify it with today. Um, So as a kid, I was seeing a picture of a basin, but they called it an emerald. And the only thing I could ever get my hands on was an emerald until one day. And then when I got that thing, I was like, wow, just, just, I'm just fascinated by that particular snake. And because of that fascination, I strive to make the ultimate home for it, something that I can really sculpt up and paint, and also a system that works, the heat, the humidity, lighting, not just you know, sticking the animal on a PVC pipe in some plastic enclosure. So to me, it was like, it was just, it was the, the, the animal itself inspired me to find a way to recreate. And here it is. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a stunning species of snake and like cer- certain things, like for example, like with, with dart frogs, I mean, obviously dart frogs have some pretty unique husbandry requirements and whatnot. You have to create a, an enclosure a certain way. And obviously naturalistic is just... Um, it's just consistent with the best type of care that these animals need. But at the same time, the amount of artistry and creativity that goes into creating these, these, you know, these builds, um, you know, a lot goes into it because you also want to showcase the the beauty of the animal itself. And, um, you know, with the, the Amazon basins, I mean, it's such an incredible animal that you've really been able to like dial this in and create this like, um, almost like a showcase for the, the snake, which is in and of itself a work of art. Yes. Well, there are exhibits, really. I mean, you know, creating a piece like this for a frog, for example, I could sculpt up some incredible detail, fine detail that looks very delicate, but because it's made out of epoxy, it's it's pretty durable. But along with that, I can create spots where you, you know, for plant pots, you can incorporate live plants with these sculptural pieces. I could definitely see that being a big plus. I I want to get into the whole process of like the inspiration and you know the the process of creating these enclosures, but uh, I wanted to backtrack a little bit because this this really is about artwork, and um, I want to talk about just some of the training and education and the experience that you have because you're you're for all intents and purposes you're you're a professional artist and you create a lot of traditional artwork. How did you get into art? Like, what was the training and education experience? Like, how did you start off as an artist and how did you progress as an artist outside of the outside of the, the, the reptile world, just as a professional artist in general? Oh, I started with graffiti in the 70s. And just, I just found it so awesome to create stuff like that on the side of a train. You know, I know it was... I know it's not right, but to create these pieces of art on the side of trains and whatnot, it was just, it's just a lot of fun. And then also, you know, before you did it on the train, you did it in a book with all your magic markers, you would create these pieces and then you slowly but surely find a way to paint them on a train. But, but I found myself just really enjoying the art creating. And then I took it up in high school but most of what I know is self-taught. It's just like 
thinking, well, how do you do that? And slowly but surely, I found my way to do it. Um, I did meet up with a teacher who I studied with for about a year who brought me into oil paint. And that took a while, you know, that took a while to really learn. It took me about 12 years to just to learn how to really paint like a master these oils. And slowly but surely, I was like, you know, this is what I want to do. And I started, I put together a portfolio and started shopping my wares and got a job here and there as an artist, an illustrator. I did children book covers until one day I landed a really nice job of doing postage stamps. I did uh, postage stamps where I painted them uh, for about 11 years for different countries around the world. And then that just got me into something else, which got me into something else. And to live in New York as an artist, I found, man, like, how do you get to work? How do you find work? It's like reaching up into the clear blue sky. And the way I found it was by being diversified. I didn't just paint oil or just acrylic or watercolor. I sculpted and I knew I just found ways to do a whole bunch of stuff. So with knowing how to do a bunch of stuff, I was able to live, live at it. And that's what I've been doing for the past bunch of years, almost 30 years. And now, though, it's taken on a new because of these enclosures that I build. Like, it just, this form of art, I mean, it's a functional art, but it, this form of art, it, 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 it gives me everything, everything I want. It challenges me in every way. It's one of the, it's, and it's purely me. Because I came up with my own method of application to create these these jungle environments and vines and all this and that. I'm not trying to um, replicate or duplicate a specific tree or this or that. I just I just sculpt these things up as I see it in my head. Now I do go. I I've moved to Florida recently, and so I do go into the wilderness and I draw and I paint. And like I kind of doing homework stuff and then I bring those things home and then I look at my project and then I draw the, you know, I draw a little, get a little information from my notes, my drawings, and I create something then based on that. So I have like uh, something to refer to, but most of it, most of it, I just make up in my head. I use the drawings and the paintings for, you know, a little color to make sure my coloring is right my texture is right for rot and and maybe bark and stuff like that but yeah what are some of the the media and techniques that you well let me let me phrase that a little differently and you just it's funny just to back up about the the graffiti thing um yeah i i knew a lot of people who had black books and um some of the best artists that i knew growing up were they were graffiti artists, and um, I think I know ex- I know exactly what the the train yard going into uh, Queens. I can't remember what it's called, but in the eighties, th- those cars were covered with graffiti, and it was it was actually it was really really beautiful. Off the um, what, what which one was that? Off the Van Wick? Um, or that the was Whitestone the one Parkway, the Seven Yard. I think I think that might have been it. In case anybody's wondering, we're both from the same island here, so um, yes. if we're referring to places that not everybody's familiar with, I apologize. But um, yeah, I think it was. Um, 
for the life of me, I can't remember. If I if I got in the car and started driving, I'd, I'd pass it. I remember, but yes. Um, I mean, re- regardless, the the eighties in New York, graffiti was everywhere, and a, a substantial part was just was exceptionally beautiful. But it presented yes. a, a unique challenge. I mean, let's let's just you know forget that aspect of it. But um, you know, tagging up a subway car is one thing, but creating a piece of artwork on that type of a media is is a unique endeavor because you're you know you're painting on a three-dimensional surface it's it's a train car yes. lots of different media have different challenges that go along with them what was the what was a learning curve with using these these different types of media to express yourself artistically well as far as the epoxy it was like what kind of medium is going to allow me to do what i see in my head I found that fiberglass resonance and stuff like that, I was not achieving that goal. And I didn't even know what epoxy was at the time until one day. I just happened to read an article about the Congo exhibit being built and the stuff they used. And I noticed in the picture they didn't use a respirator. And I was like, wow. So I was able to call the the, uh, the project director and she gave me the name of the epoxy and where to get it. And then I just picked it up and started playing with it. And slowly but surely, you know, it took a couple of years, but I got a good handle on it to be able to manipulate it, to do exactly what I see in my head, to achieve those textural effects, whatever, whatever, you know. And then once the piece was sculpted, well, then, you know, the thing I do some of the stuff I do well is paint. And so now I need, I can paint it up as detailed as I can imagine. And man, to me, it's just, it's like pure joy. If you could bottle it and sell it, that's joy right there. Yeah. And for, for the listeners, I mean, if you guys have a chance, pull up snakescapes.com and I want you to take a look at some of Ron's exhibits and um the the unique distinction here and this is something that that really caught my attention was there's a lot of companies and whatnot that make backgrounds they make artificial rock tree limbs whatever and um many of these are just kind of like templates that are mass produced or it's a mold of an actual tree or an actual rock rock outcropping whatnot that's you know cast and whatever you make every one of these by hand, right? This is not something that you mass produce. This is every one is done exclusively by you, right? Yes. Everything's handmade, hand sculpted, hand painted. Yeah. I start from blank. And then at the end of the experience, there it is. So what gives you the initial impression? Like, do you, I mean, I know you said you don't look to mimic a specific like species of tree or whatnot, but do you do like kind of like a similar design or is each one dramatically different? Like, how do you, like, how do you decide what you want to go into a certain piece? Like, do you kind of, I don't want to say copy, but like, do you kind of reproduce uh, a similar design that's in your head or do you just kind of free range each one based on whatever you feel like doing? Well, the exhibit work is that it's like, you know, you have to have X amount of elements in there to achieve the effect I want. So there are some specifics, tree trunks, that sort of thing. But within that, those tree trunks are all different. The rot, the, the lichens, the funguses, 
the vines, you know, so there is a, there are specific elements that go in, but those specific elements are always changing. They all look different. And what do you base your inspiration on, like, outside of your head? Like, do you get a photograph or create a thumbnail sketch? Like, how do you, like, what's your reference point for? Yeah, so I, I go in the woods in, the, in Florida here. It's like it's subtropical, and I'll go and I'll find a place where I could do some drawing. And then based on that, it dep- you know, like, let's say this, this enclosure size is 48 by 30 wide by 26 deep. So I'll look at my drawings and I'll, okay, then I'll go to a blank piece of paper and I'll start to do different thumbnails to see how I can incorporate these trees with these cool effects. And slowly but surely, I'll bring it around to where that thumbnail is now. The thumbnail is now a really good drawing. So there it is. You know, I'll mark off too, like I'll scale it down like 48 inches. I'll scale it down to where the inches, the the little frame I draw on the piece of paper, it it's 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 the same kind of size. If I just brought that image up, it would fit perfectly into a 48 by 30. So I know that the 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 size is correct and because none, nothing happens in these enclosures by accident. They're all specifically made. And that, and that I draw out so I know where everything's kind of going. You know, like you'll see a, 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 all this vine work, uh, but it's, it, it's for an effect. It's impenetrable, you know, because snakes will find their way anywhere and they can get stuck and they can get hurt. But the effect that I achieve is this impenetrable section of vine work that just really looks cool. And you could actually see, but you could see through the vine work to a to another effect that makes you think like here you are, you're actually looking into a box, the enclosure, but yet it looks like you're looking into a chunk of nature that just behind that tree is is distance and perspective. So it's it's all it's all from going into the woods, be, draw, riding around, hiking around it, looking at things, drawing. And then I come and I sit in the studio and I just kind of like have some fun. Is any of this commission? Like if someone comes in and says, I want a certain look or I want you to maybe model a photograph of something I saw in the wild. Like how would a commission process work if someone came in and said, all right, I, I want to do this. How would you guide that person in terms of how the, you know, the fine, the final uh, piece of artwork would come out? Well, it's all commissioned. There's, there's, there's like I don't have a, an inventory of pieces. Every, every bit of work I do is, is commissioned. Now, having said that, if someone says, usually what happens is that someone says, "Well, just go ahead, just do your thing." You know, here are the dimensions. You know, just perch, you know, because I'm, I'm building for that specific animal. I like if if, if it's for the basin, I'm, I'm building an environment specifically for it. If it was a ground snake, I'd be designing an environment specifically for that snake. You've got total snake habitats, you've got inserts, and you've got branches. Can you walk us through the three different um, you know, pieces or like the three different things that you offer to people that they could commission from you. 
Like what are the specifics to the, the three different ones? Like maybe we'll start off with the, let's start off with the inserts and then work our way up to the total habitats. What, what goes into the inserts and how could someone uh, apply that into their enclosure at home? So you give me the, the interior dimensions of the unit. And then from that, and then of course you say you want a background and then the perch, the three point perch. So I'll start to do some drawing and I'll measure, I'll make sure that these backgrounds, they don't utilize a lot of space because you got the radiant heat panel at the top. So the background is really something that doesn't take up a lot of space, but boom, it just fills up that unit. It almost creates that when you look through you, the, the, the face of your enclosure, you're looking at this tree trunk and, and, and rot and stuff like that. And then, of course, the perch for the animal. Um, it's just with those interior dimensions that I create these things. Usually, like I said earlier, usually people don't ask for specifics. They just want me to just do my thing. Another thing I'm noticing about the perches is that you have really like artistically incorporated a, a lot of surface area into something that looks so natural because obviously with, with arboreal snakes, you know, they're, they're arboreal and they're not just going to necessarily want to sit in one spot at the same time, but you've created so many different spots here where, where a stormy, I guess, snake or any animal could hang out. Um, like a jungle gym. Yeah, exactly. And it, it looks like it, it doesn't look like it's one piece. It looks like it's multiple pieces that have kind of been juxtaposed upon each other. And um, my, my favorite part is actually these little mushroom fungus things that you've got coming off the side. Um, yeah. Like, how did you how did you come up with the idea to incorporate a lot of these little extras? Like the um, like there, there's a knot in the, in the piece of the wood here. There's some leaves and um, there's even like a even what looks like like a diseased like section of the the branch you know where branch might get um, yes. damaged or whatnot well i find that people like the awesomeness that's real i mean the functionality is one thing these things don't the but the, you know we're talking about the perches the three-point perches you know they don't bow they don't sag they don't absorb odor so as far as the functionality okay that's one thing but the awesomeness to sculpt up all this insane detail I mean, people love that stuff. And then you put a beautiful chondro or basin or emerald on that thing. Man, oh, man, it just kind of completes the picture. These perches are great, I think, are a great complement to these beautiful animals. And what about the full inserts? Let's, let's walk up to that one now. So you offer a full habitat insert, which is, I mean, again, very, very stunningly beautiful. I mean, I'm looking down here. You've got a... Um, one looks like a, um, not quite, almost like a mangrove type of situation here, I guess. And then yes. you've got another one with uh, bamboo, whatnot. Like if someone came up to you and said, all right, I want a full insert, but not necessarily for an arboreal species. Like some of these look like they might do well in a paludarium or a forest floor setup. Yes. How, how do you figure out like how to size these and how to, um, you know, I mean, obviously, the customer or whoever whoever commissions the piece is going to have to install this in their terrarium or tank at home. Yes. How do you how do you create something like this, and how do you prepare it so that it can be installed in a customer's tank? Yeah, good question. Well, all of these things are made in in that specific way because I want you, the hobbyist, to be able to 
easily install these things. I provide all the directions. You know, that's why initially when I get the measurements from you, there are the interior dimensions. Plus, if let's say if there's a faceplate on on the front of the unit, what's the size of the opening? So I know. So the piece that I create has to be easily brought into the piece, into the enclosure, rather, and then set up and set in place. So with with those dimensions, once I get those dimensions, I sit down with a pencil and pad, and I'll sketch these things out to scale. Whatever your unit size is, I'll make a few boxes on a piece of paper that are in scale to that size. So I'll do my scribbles, and then from those scribbles, I'll work it up to something that I think looks awesome. And what about the full system? I know we we I mean, we talk for off air about this, and um, you I, obviously I, I don't ex, you know expect you to get into every little detail, but why have a whole system with with the background and everything? Like why um why create that? Because in addition to the, the the visual aspect of it, you've also created something that's very very functional, and I guess almost like a like a plug and play type of situation, right? How did you? How did you manage to marry those two interests together? Because you've got the functional tank with a beautiful insert. Like, what was the whole thought process behind that? Well, like you said, you hit it right on the head. It's it, This is uh, an exhibit where all you have to do is plug it in, add water and snake. The heating system, humidity, lighting, everything's included. Over the years, I mean, I started this concept in the late 80s. And it's just been over the years of trying. How do you make something like this that holds the heat, holds the humidity, and breathes at the same time? Something that looks as natural as possible, but it's not. Because when you do use natural things, the wood and whatnot, you know, it it tends to rot. It can smell. It can do things. It can grow mold. Well, I don't want any of that, but yet here I was able to create that very same look. These these trees look real, these vines, they, but it's all plastic. And what I said earlier, yeah, it's all plastic, keeping with that very sterile type of environment that a lot of hobbyists want for their animals. It's sterile. I mean, the, the ingredients to the whole uh, snakescape exhibit is plastic rubber and glass those are the three things that make up the whole interior so with the heating system and the humidity it's a system that works oh my gosh this is like a museum piece now here's a couple of logistical questions for you obviously the functional aspect is is important so how would you go about cleaning one of these tanks and um i mean obviously i mean just to my audience is mostly frog people, and a lot of us do naturalistic builds. With a lot of us, use some pretty artificial materials like uh, silicone and foam and whatnot, which are obviously you know not they're obviously man-made materials. But um, we can't really necessarily get in there and like if something happens to one of my backgrounds, I can't necessarily just get in there and start scrubbing it with something. But these backgrounds, you, right. you can clean these, right? Like if you needed yes. to clean it up how would you go about doing that well these things are made with maintenance in mind easy access for easy maintenance and the way that of the design inside the enclosure 
you know, the, the way the trees are formed, the vines, everything like that. It's all designed to fall right to the center of the bottom. The bottom is is sculpted out in a way where whatever is on, there's no like side where, where if the animal defecates, it's gonna sit on the side in the corner. Everything flows down to the center, to the bottom center. Everything is like curved to, to, to flow and, and, and eventually end up there. So it's a whole design aspect that helps you, the hobbyist, when it is time to clean it out. And then with the cleaning process, I offer the maintenance kit. And basically, you know, I, I could just tell you how, how it's done. Once I tell you how it's done, how easy it is, you can, you can take that info and incorporate it into the way you take care of your animal. I'm trying to think of some some species that would do well in this, and because it's 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 for me it's a new concept. I mean, it's well, it's not a new concept because I've I've admired stuff like this for for years, but um, with the the naturalistic approach, um, for certain frogs, like for example, uh, tree frogs, um, there's different schools of thought on how tree frogs need to be kept kind of super duper clean, and how it's hard to maintain certain species in a more naturalistic tank because. Uh, you know, sheds and waste and things like that aren't necessarily easily cleaned in an environment that's naturalistic. But in this case, you've got something that's aesthetically very, very beautiful, mimics nature. But you could get in there and clean this once yes. or twice a day if need be. Because, oh, yeah. like, r- right off the bat, I'm thinking of, and I, I mean, I, I know you're a snake guy, but I'm trying, I'm thinking of like some of the Phylomedusa species. Um, that might do really well in this type of situation because they're arboreal, they're they're big, they're stunningly beautiful, but they also produce a lot of waste. And I know certain keepers and breeders that I've spoke to like to keep them very, very clean. They can be issues with, um, you know, their health can be, again, it's, it's one of those things that's it's open to debate. I'm not going to turn this into a, a referendum on which species does what, but I mean, my, my gut is telling me certain species of tree frog, like some of the larger species of Phylomedusa, would probably do, probably do pretty well in this, just given the fact that you can wipe this thing down rather than keeping them in a sterile glass tank. Oh, yeah. I created an environment where the animal's not going to be able to go hide somewhere, you know, and do his business and that you won't see for a day or something. There are no nooks and crannies for the animal to hide. It looks like there are, but like I was saying before about the the vine work, it's impenetrable. You can't get in there. It's just for effect. So, and the way the unit is designed, especially with these arboreal animals, is the sculptural work is designed so that if the animal is sitting on the perch, whatever, whatever, it, you know, and it does its business, it just falls straight down. It's not going to find its way. It's not going to be, he's not going to be allowed to defecate in some, you know, nook and cranny where you as the hobbyist would be like, oh, brother, how am I going to get at that? But the way it falls and the way it settles, that it all runs down into the middle, you know, with the maintenance, the sponge, the brush, man, it's it, it's so simple to clean. It's just you, the hobbyist, have to clean it. You've got to be diligent. Yeah, that's definitely important, especially with frogs. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm like really, really meticulous with, with cleaning. I, I Everything is, has to be immaculate. I, I don't tolerate smell or anything like that. So obviously, right. a, you know, a functional aspect is going to be is going to be paramount too. Because 
like um, I'm trying to give a good example. Actually, you know what? I have, I have I have a great example. My daughter's crested gecko is in a naturalistic tank, we'll say. And um, if everyone wants to use the word bioactive, we can throw that out there. I don't know what happened. One day I came in and there was just this vile odor in there that was just, I don't know what it was. I mean, I'm keeping reptiles for over 30 years. I have no idea what the smell was. I don't know if it was a, something rotted in there or what, but it, it was horrendous. And I, I ended up having to scrap everything, including the, I, honestly, I ended up just taking the whole tank. It was a conversion kit. And um, I took the conversion kit off of the aquarium and just threw everything away and just started over. Because I couldn't, I couldn't really disinfect. I mean, I couldn't disinf- disinfect a, a cork background because it's, it's it's porous. It's I can't get in there and scrub it. So I had no other alternative. I mean, I I couldn't sterilize this tank as is. I, I had to junk it. But with this type of situation, you've kind of solved that problem because you can clean this, sterilize it, and start over again, right? Oh, sure. Well, at the bottom where everything falls, you know. It's clear-coated with another type of epoxy that's extremely durable. So whatever you, you know, I have the, the, the cleaning solution I use on these is actually water and some Listerine. And I get in there with my brush and I scrub it and you see the suds build up a little bit. And then I clean it out, I rinse it out, clean it out until where you're running your finger along the bottom and you hear the squeaky clean. You can't mistake the sound of squeaky clean. And then I just add water again. You know, once I've finished cleaning, put some fresh water in and, and there you go. And I wipe out the, the water area just about every day. To clean it so there's no that mineral buildup where you start to see the white of the you know evaporated water this setup is made to clean it's, it's built in a way with maintenance in mind and that's definitely a plus especially with people who use misting systems like i know we, we were we were talking off air for a while about just kind of the differences between snake setups and dart frog setups and we were talking about misting and um you know, misting is, is a big thing because especially with dendrobatids and, and other species of frog that come from tropical areas with a heavy rainfall, obviously you kind of want to wash everything away that could be dirty or whatnot, have it fall to the bottom and then go away through some kind of, some kind of drainage, which mm-hmm. a lot of people incorporate into their tanks. Um, that's, that's definitely a, that's, that's a cool, cool feature. I mean, what, what were some of the, like the, the, the whole process in, in design like, what were some, some stumbling blocks that you went over along the way? Like, how did you figure out that you needed to design this in such a way that it would kind of naturally drain? Like, what were, like, were there some early designs that you weren't happy with that you, you learned from? Or, like, what were some, what were some mistakes that you might have made uh, along oh, yeah. the way? I mean, I'm, uh, well, holy mackerel. All I did was make mistakes. I mean, they looked cool, but they didn't work. You know, it didn't, I, you know. I developed the functionality over time and then just, you know, drawing and thinking like, you know, how do you create this type of environment where for these arboreal snakes that they do their business and it just falls straight down the way the vine work is set up. Like I, I dictate where the animal hangs out. I'm creating the perches in specific places so that, the animal will be sitting right in, you know, hiding in plain sight. 
And when it's time to do its business, like I say, it, it can't kind of go anywhere. It 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 hangs on those vines that I that are prearranged for for just so he's sitting right there, basically in the center of the unit. He'll crawl around and do his business, yes, but it's it it all drains down to the center bottom, and then that's where it's collected. You wipe it, you clean it, you can clean the sides, you can clean the trees. It's all it's all that durable. And how long does one of these builds take? Like let's let's just say that. Someone comes up to you and says, I want to commission a, we'll say a, a 48 by 48 inch uh, full background for a custom enclosure that I already have at home. What's, yes. what's, what is the whole creative process behind someone, a client coming to you and saying, I want to commission this piece to the actual end product? Like how long does that take? And like, what are some of the steps and the, the processes involved and do you just do one yes. at a time or do you do several at a time if you get multiple commissions? Yeah, I do several at a time. You know, the, I, I got all my workstations percolating until the, each one reaches a specific phase where I then, that's the only one I work on. You know, like this, you build certain, you're building it, you're building each one and then it comes to a certain point where, okay, now you just focus on that and you bring it to finish. Um, but you're asking about just the background piece, not the snakescape exhibit. Yeah, right? just the background piece. Okay. Yeah. So, like, once I, once I would, depending on the size and the complexity of the project, gosh, I could have a piece done in in a couple of weeks or months. I've I've worked on projects for a couple of months. Where, for example, when I did the um, snakescape exhibits, some of the larger ones, man, they just take the time they take. If it's a small, just a background piece from start to finish, yeah, a couple of weeks. What was the biggest one that you've ever done? I did one that was six high, six feet high, 48 wide, and 36 deep. That was the biggest one with a, a waterfall and dramatic lighting i mean some of these things like with a waterfall that falls into a nice pond i set up a spotlight in, in on the top that would focus on where the where the waterfall meets the pond so you're you're catching these ripples of water and because of that now you're seeing ripples of light on the underside of certain elements, some vine work, some rock work, you know, it adds to this whole visual, you know, like you're almost looking in, into nature. You have the sound of the water splashing, and then you see the visual of the light dancing on the underside of these things. And then, of course, there's the animal. You bring up a good point about lighting, and um, it, it's it's one of those things where people kind of just take for granted that a piece of artwork, whether it be an exhibit at a zoo in someone's home or even, you know, a piece of art, a sculpture in a museum, just how important lighting actually is to the overall impression of what you're, what you're experiencing. I mean, do you, do you create like different focal points in your enclosure that can be accented by like different light placement? Cause like some of my builds, which are nowhere, nowhere near, nowhere near as good as yours. I've noticed that if I move my lights around, I get kind of a, a different effect. I can accentuate different spots or there might be a perch I want to, you know, or a plant I might want to get more light on. 
does any of that factor into your design? Oh, yeah. It's like you're creating a drama. With the lighting, you get cast shadow, you get highlights. I compose these pieces as I would a painting with background, middle ground, foreground. How do you create foreshortening? I use all that technique when I create these things. So there is that element of depth where you look inside this exhibit and you're like, what? And it looks like there's just around the court, just around that tree is space and air. And yet it's not, it's just an illusion. It's just an effect. For the listeners who might not necessarily um, understand what foreshortening is and like perspective and whatnot, can you get into a little bit more detail in terms of what that means artistically? Like, you want things to recede to the back so you use a different you use lighter color and then you want things to pop out in the foreground so you use a darker color it helps it pop and then especially in these snakescape exhibits i use other effects to create that depth where for example i'll put that thicket of vines that is the snake can't crawl in it but you could see through it. And because of the lighting, it looks like through the vines is something else over there. But yet it's just an effect. So that helps create the depth, the light, the way, the way I manipulate the light to shine. Well, I don't just have a light bulb, let's say at the top. My whole, on these exhibits, the whole top is the light. The whole top is a plexiglass, is clear plexi, and then they have a sheet of light that fits the entire top. So light is streaming down from, from the whole top of the enclosure, not from like a bulb or a fluorescent. You follow me? So the whole top is LED lighting. And it just gives a nice, warm, uniform light. And I also affect it with stained glass. I'll put pieces of stained glass up on top, yellow or green or blue, and it will help create a special light effect as the light shines down on the tree because it's streaming through a colored glass. It offers another color effect, which is also cool. Do you have a preference for any specific type of type of bulb? I mean, you mentioned LEDs, but like I've noticed, like incandescents look a little bit different sometimes. And like I, I've always found, like LEDs are often kind of bright. What's your yes. preferences? Well, I have these for these exhibits because I have a starting point as far as the size. So what I do is I get these sheets. These are they're tiny little LED lights on this sheet. So now you've got this 17 by 12 sheet of light. I get one that's more white light and the one that's a yellow light. And by mixing the two, it creates just the right temperature of light inside the unit. Plus, it's on a, a dimmer. So it's not just blasting in your face or in the snake's face. You could dim it down, brighten it up during the day, and then as the night go comes, you kind of dim it down to where at night it's at, it's you know where it's so dim in there, it looks almost dark. 
but you could see the animal do its thing. You see the snake come down into its S-shaped position for hunting. You know, he's hungry. I mean, it adds that drama. There's the cast shadows. It's, yes, the lighting is extremely important. Now, as far as the Emerald Basins go, and again, I my knowledge of boas is nothing. I have no experience with any species of boa. I've never kept any any species of boa, let alone any Amazon tree boas, any any Amazon basins. They they have kind of a unique behavior though, where they just kind of ball up into this really really like beautiful, almost like this little like some. It's 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 hard to describe. It's just like their head kind of situates right in the middle, and the coils kind of roll up on either side like real evenly. Um. But when they when they're active at night, right? What what kind of behaviors do you notice, like in this type of a, in this type of enclosure that you might not notice in a more Spartan enclosure with just say like two plain horizontal perches? Like, do you see more naturalistic yeah. behaviors? Oh, brother! When because like the vine work is all set up to be like a jungle gym, so there are different levels, there's different angles, there's all this different stuff. So you see the animal as he utilizes that jungle gym. He's, he's crawling in and out of it until he finds a nice place where let, we're talking about it, you know, at night where he finds a place where he's ready to set up and hunt. And then you see the way he wraps his tail around a, a little broken off piece as he, you know, weaves his body in and out of these other vines. And then as he just sinks into that S shape. It's and plus know too that the vine work is set up that way, knowing these animals. I know that that's how they hunt. They hang in an S shape. So I set up the vine work to allow for that so that there are, you know, there's nothing in their way when they want to hunt. It's just a nice clear drop. They're hanging in their S shape. Listen, at night I see this guy crawl down and extend himself all the way to the bottom to drink. I mean, it's cool. It's it's just it adds that very. They look like they're doing it natural, like they're in a natural environment compared to being on, let's say, a, you know, a white PVC pipe in a black enclosure, where it's, it's just those two stark things. He's you're not going to see that kind of action on two horizontal bars as you would in the jungle gym-like vine work I create. It's got to be really impressive. I... And it's good for the animal. I mean, they're hanging out. They're, they're working out. They're moving. I mean, as far as captivity goes, there's, 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 there's vertical pieces for them to just, like, shimmy up. There's the, the, the vines for the perches. There's things for them to crawl in and out of on, on, as far as the vine work. So it gives them, like... I'd like to believe a little bit more of a workout, a little bit more like like we were talking earlier offline um, about not overfeeding. Well, <clears throat> I don't overfeed my guy because I like to watch him crawl around at night looking for food because he's hungry. You know, not that I starve him in any way, believe me, but, you know, it's it's cool to watch. Yeah, I like to watch animals hunt it's it's just such an interesting behavior and like the the dart frogs have a you kind of this weird behavior where they do this little toe tapping thing when they're foraging for fruit flies or whatever else you're giving it to them i, I enjoy that 
I, I just, I feel like with some of the snakes, I, I mean, obviously I don't, we, we talk about this before. I, neither of us feed live and you kind of have to feed them off the tongues, but you really don't get to appreciate those, those hunting behaviors that you'd sometimes would get if you were feeding in a more naturalistic situation. That's got to be pretty cool to observe. I mean, the only time I've ever seen a chondro python or any kind of tree boa has always been kind of in that situated kind of daytime position, you know what I mean? Where they're coiled yes. up. Yes. And um, from, oh, what I, yeah. Yeah, from what I understand, like they're, they're actually pretty active at night. They kind of go all over the place. Yes, they do. And then they set up, <clears throat> they set up on a spot. And then they start to hunt. They drop down into S shape. I mean, I have had chondros and and emeralds that I did feed live to in these enclosures that I designed. You know, that were really cool looking. And it's wild to see because they'll get they'll you actually see the hunt. You watch it. It's like a documentary almost in a way. And because it's at night, like imagine you know, your room, all the lights are off in your room. And the only light that is on is the dimmer inside the enclosure. And your eye adjusts to that temperature of light. And man, you know, you see the snake doing his business. And then when I did have an animal in an enclosure where I fed it live, I had a a feeder hole on the side that I opened up and I dropped the rodent in, close it. And next thing you know, there's the rodent crawling around and you see that hunt, that snake. Oh man, you see him tense up and he, it's like, oh my gosh. But you know, like we're talking today, you've got these beautiful animals that you spent a couple of bucks for. The last thing you want to do is, is, is chance it to putting a live rat in the, in the enclosure because the rat could, do some damage to the snake. Yeah, that's always been one of those things I, I try to avoid. I mean, it's and the other thing is like the I mean the the snakes that I keep, I mean I with the exception of the the king snake, the blood pythons are these big fat like job of the hut kind of like semi-fossorial species. So they don't really do too much you know what i mean they're not really these like live types of constrictors that are going to you know serpentine through branches and whatnot they kind of just sit and wait so like yes. my fear is always like with them i mean they're on the ground so any kind of live rodent is going to be right in direct contact with them yeah. whereas like you know a chondro or, or a, an emerald tree bow or a basin that's sitting maybe you know two three four feet above the substrate might not necessarily have that, you know, that problem getting the business end of a rat. It's just one of those things that I, I just like, but it, it varies like on species. Like I feel like you could get away with this in your situation. Whereas with mine, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do it in that. Cause I, <laughs> I spent a lot of money getting the snake healthy again after she had a big infection. And, um, yeah. the last thing I want is, <laughs> is anything going in there and I'm doing that, but, um, it, it must be really amazing to observe, observe, um, you know, that, that hunting behavior. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I mean, today I just, I just want to know that he's, I mean, he still goes into hunting posture often. I mean, I think too, you know, by not overfeeding them when it is time to feed, they feed right away. You know, there's no like, Oh brother, he didn't strike. You know what I mean? He's ready to eat. And what was What's the distinction between emerald tree boa and Amazon basin boa? 
the head shape is a little different and the body coloration the basins have you know on a, on a really like a classic basin it has that white stripe that goes all the way down its spine and then it then those the 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 shape of white that just come down the side like these white saddles that ride along its back i find that the emeralds the head is a little different but the the white markings are like almost like like a lightning bolt effect you know on either side there is not that white line of scale that runs down it's right runs along its spine you don't see that in the emeralds but but that's the that's like the first thing that you can spot right off the bat is the white effect how long did it take you to get a handle on their husbandry because from what i what I understand, this is not like, it's not a beginner species. It's not something that someone with just some, you know, very, very basic reptile experience is going to go into. I mean, we we were talking off air trying to find a comparison. I guess, I guess I could kind of equate it to someone like the large obligate species, like some of the, the larger ufaga that have some more quirks to them. But yes. how, like, how was it figuring out how to keep these things properly? Yeah, well, that was challenging because it's the heat and humidity that you got to keep right so that they'll be happy snakes and want to eat. It took a while. I mean, I, I, you know, like I shared with you, I started in the late 80s making these things and I was using the heating elements that were available at the time. And I just started to configure them this way and that and try to find ways to, well, how do you hold the heat? And I found different elements. Some of it didn't work. Listen, I had a few, I had a really beautiful Amazon basin I shared with you. But um, I saw that I was not able to maintain, where I moved, I wasn't able to give it that, that temperature, that humidity. I wasn't able to achieve that. So I donate, I was able to donate it to the zoo. Otherwise, otherwise oh man, I, I could have killed it. You know what I mean? So it, it is challenging in that way. But once you have the environment down and the snake is happy, I think he'll just, he just eats because everything's fine. Yeah. It seems like once you get everything right, they'll like, it's weird. It's almost like this unspoken thing where you just kind of like, you kind of realize that you've, you've gotten it. Yeah. Maybe it's a routine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the te- you see, you've got these digital readouts, you see the temperatures right. You see the water level, you see the humidity, you see everything's right, everything's groovy. And then because of that, the snake is happy. And with happy snake, he wants to eat, he does his business regularly. Yeah, but that's that was the thing in developing this to that point. Yeah, now I'm at that point where I've, I've developed a, a habitat system that offers the all the comforts it needs, all the comforts it needs. It has it all. And what are the parameters? Like what, what, like what, what are the temperature and humidity and what, like if you wanted to keep one, what would you, like, what's the range that you would need to keep it in to keep it healthy and happy? This, these units go between 83, 86 degrees. And then as far as the humidity, 
you you can by adding more water you can have a greater level of humidity like when you know the snake is getting ready to shed i'll add more water for for that extra humidity but basically i keep it around 50 60 percent humidity and 83 86 degrees in temperature and i think like because these units breathe they do go up and down a degree it's not like it's exactly 86 degrees all day long 24 7. they breathe if you're if the ambient temperature in the room changes it'll change a degree or two that's why it goes down like down to 83 and then up to 86. Yeah, I'm, I'm honestly su I'm surprised that the humidity didn't have to be higher. You can make it higher. Well, you don't have to keep it. You know, I don't want to get um, any respiratory infection stuff. I believe that, you know, offered the right conditions, the right conditions could fall anywhere in 83 degrees, 86, 50% humidity, 70%. I mean, as long as the snake is happy, and I mean, he's doing fine. He adjusts. I mean, it, it's not like, it's not like I find that it's not like the snake needs the exact temperature and the exact level of humidity in order to thrive. I find that it, it kind of can, he can live in an 84 degree environment with 50% humidity or 60%. And then when he's getting ready to shed, I bring it up to 80, I bring it up to 90, you know, the night that he is about to shed or the night I think he's going to shed. I'll bring that, that humidity up to 90. And the next thing you know, you wake up in the morning and there is a complete shed, not, you know, little pieces or anything like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the biggest challenge is to maintain that type of temperature humidity and 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 the fact that it breathes i think that's a good thing yeah it's a similar similar approach to what we would i guess go through when with dar frogs is you want to have that balance of of humidity and temperature and also air exchange i um i want to get your thoughts though on some of the the dark frog builds like what you think of it artistically i'm going to send you over I'm going to send you over a picture of a vivarium. This is not my vivarium that I'm sending you, by the way. This is, um, it's actually a listener's. Um, I think this is probably maybe 36 inches by 36 inches. I'm going to send it to you now. I just want to, and this is all like naturalistic build with live plants and um, moss and leaf litter and everything like that. What's your take on this as an artist? Like this is kind of a template for what everybody kind of, looks to do in the dart frog world yeah oh that's beautiful and it's all live yeah 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 wow i mean artistically like what what, what do you think of kind of like the, the the dart frog mode here i guess we'd call it like with the lot there's a lot of green there's a lot of green in there a lot of live plants yeah i mean you know to recreate like how do you recreate a little bit of nature inside these enclosures? That's the challenge, you know, as a hobbyist, what kind of vision do we have? How do we do? And then how do you achieve that? What are the elements? And this one, this was a beautiful example of someone who's, who, uh, 
create a pretty beautiful piece. Yeah, it's got a lot, a lot of. Sorry, I'm, I'm like looking away from. I'm looking away from the mic. I got, I got to stay in front of the mic. Yes. Um, yeah, it's got. There's a lot of interesting focal points, and I mean, just from like, like, like some commonalities. Like, what are some things that are important to three dimensional art? Like focal points, or I mean, we talked about foreshortening and, and like perspective before. Like, what are some basic elements that you need artistically for a piece of three dimensional art to be appealing well you know you would you, you know i can imagine you start off with well what's the body of the piece going to look like you know the a tree trunk a fallen log a couple of rocks you know a pond like and so and and to to create that with all the detail you can muster right and then along with that knowing that you're going to incorporate live foliage so you make these areas in the tree, in the fallen log, on the ground, where you can place these plant pots. So now you can start to plant this thing and have these live trees, uh, I'm sorry, live plants and vine and that sort of thing start to grow. But once they start to grow and they start to fill out the enclosure, it'll look so natural because you'll have the tree trunk there you'll have the rod of the tree trunk you know some rocks some you know and i'm talking about my sculpted elements you'll have all those things in place and then when the live plants really start to settle into the unit and grow the way they grow oh man you know it makes for a beautiful exhibit i think the commonality here also is that the animal is also a focal point and it's an interesting dichotomy because dart frogs by and large are pretty brightly colored and they're going to stand out pretty well against like, like for example, like uh, some of the Ufaga species, like Ufaga pamilio, um, a lot of red frogs, a lot of Tinctorius is a lot of blue frogs, a lot of yellow frogs. And for the most part, a lot of them stand out pretty significantly against green and brown. But what you've got is a snake that's very, very green, has white flecking and whatnot, and kind of blends in, but at the same time sticks out. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those things that was always appealing to me about them is the fact that, you know, they, they're the same coloration or almost the same coloration as what's going on behind them, yet they still stick out so much and they still make such an amazing focal point. Yes. Yeah, well, in designing these things, I think of that like I use colors that will, that will like subdued colors, so they don't, you know, I do what I do with the color, but it's it it the it, it helps the animal pop, you know, and and the way I create the environment, like I was saying earlier, I set up where I want that animal to hang out. There aren't nooks and crannies where it could get lost. They are hiding in plain sight. So building for something for frogs, I mean, you can create some awesome application depth and, 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 and detail. And at the same time, well, the only place that those animals can hide would be under the, the leaves, that the, the leaves that are growing. They're not going to find their way inside of the, the, the sculptural piece, the sculpted piece, there's just no place for them to go. They will, they'll be out in front. 
Yeah, that's another design feature that I, I like. I'll be honest with you, I wasn't even expecting that because one of those things I was wondering when I was looking at this is, like, well, like, what if something got stuck underneath here or, you know, a feeder insect got in there and, and, and died, but you managed to blend those things so perfectly that that's not actually a problem anymore? Well, well, understand that if I knew that you were going to have insects in the in the enclosure, I would design it differently. Okay. See, I, got you. I know I know with a snake that's eating mammals, I know that it there's there are you know, I don't have to worry about bugs. So I you know, for tiny little places for them to go. You know, but if I was to do something for it like this the frogs and stuff, I would create a whole different effect because you have insects. I don't want those insects to be going places that you can't get at and then they die and then whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, each thing I make is for that specific animal, you know? So I do a little homework, like, what is it? You know, is it a ground snake? What kind of ground snake? Where does it, how does it hunt? You know, and, and I'll do my best to make an environment that that is natural to it. So if you were to design a background in your media, your, your chosen um, media, the epoxy, if you were to do that for, say, a, a dart frog, what are yes. some elements that you might include stylistically to make it look appealing and also be a functional piece of art? Well, you, you know, you would start with a nice tree trunk hit, uh, where it, how it grows out of the ground, some nice rot effects. But with frogs and stuff, you could do some really delicate looking vine work. So, I mean, it looks delicate, but it's really not. So that's one of the cool things that that I would find with that. You could go to town on super detail where they could crawl in and out of things. and and it's plus knowing that you know you're going to have live plants eventually and they grow into the way they're going to grow um yeah but as a staple as a beginning yeah nice tree trunk rock a fallen log you know a, a, a bit of a pond a bit of a you know lack of a better term a little shoreline you know with the rocks but all those things are sculpted. It's not like you're putting in rocks. All those effects are sculpted out. How heavy is this material? Like, um, you know, if you wanted to put it into a tank, how much how much weight would it occupy? If it was say, um, you know, like like let's just say like a three foot by three foot uh, background, how much would something like that weigh? Oh, that's not much at all. I mean, you might it might it might be, I don't know, eight pounds. Something like that. All right, yeah. So it's 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 reasonable. Well, you know, again, depending upon the complexity of it, is it a background piece with a bottom piece as well, where you have the pond and the fallen log kind of thing? You know, if it's just a background piece, it could be around eight pounds, kind of sorta for that size, and then the bottom piece would be equal to that. Nothing heavy that you can't maneuver, because again, I create these pieces so you, the hobbyist, it's not this hassle to install. It's not this thing, you know. And the inserts come in like sections, right? So if you had, 
say, uh, um, say we, I guess we'd give you the measurements of a tank and I guess you'd determine whether it could be slid in from the top or from the front, you'd be able to somehow configure it so that it could get in there like either in one piece or, or, in, or in sections, right? Because sometimes it gets into a box. Absolutely, yeah, tricky. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you have full access to the unit, like, yes, you could take the whole top or the front. And, yes, I, I would give you one piece and then, boom, you install. But if it's a, if it's a thing where we have – there's a couple of challenges as far as the openings, I give it to you in pieces so that you then reassemble it like a model, like a model of a jungle. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's all it's all in there. It, you know, whatever the challenge is, the piece is made accordingly. Now, another question I, I wanted to ask you is, you're a full-time artist. This is your, your career. This is your job. Are you able to function completely independently just on these builds or do you have to incorporate other projects like in more mainstream art as well? Like, um, basically what I'm asking is like people want to be an artist for a living, but they don't realize like how challenging it actually is. Like, what's your, like, what's your long-term goal here? Do you want to develop this as like the end all be all? Like you want to focus on this exclusively or are you still working on other projects as well? Well, these past couple of years, I've been more and more involved in just this. My goal with this concept is to be doing more of my snakescape exhibit work, where I build the enclosure and the whole habitat system. For me, that's everything. It's like it encompasses every single thing I know. So I love that kind of high skill level. Um, so that's where I see it going. But but so far, like as of right now, I'm living on just snakescapes work. I stopped doing other stuff. It just didn't interest me. Well, I, I don't want to say it didn't interest me, but slowly but surely, the snakescape work just became more and more. And so because it became more and more, the other stuff became less and less because this is really what I enjoy these days. You know, we're always we're always evolving as artists, whatever we do. And it's just that these past, I'm going to say, I'm going to say the past 13 years is really where there's been a change with my Snakescape's work. And and then it's been in the past five, six, that I've been able to to get it so that I can start to live off of it. Did the dynamics change in the past three years with the whole, the whole COVID situation sent a lot of people into different directions? I mean, I'm, I started the podcast in 2020, you know, in, in part because I had a lot of, you know, I had time on my hands and it seemed like a, you know, good way to make use of my time. Mm -hmm. Did, did the, the, the period from 2020 up until now, how was that like in terms of like demand for your work? Cause it seemed to me like a lot of people were buying animals and a lot of people were at home putting more effort into building better enclosures or whatnot. Was there any effect on you during like the past three years in terms of demand for this or, or was it kind of consistent? Oh, it did change when Corona hit, man. It, I was so surprised. It's exactly like what you were saying. People had, a, had some more time. They wanted to do some cool builds and, and I, along with the social media world, you know, I found myself busy. 
I found myself more busy than I thought I would be. And then that's when another shift started to take place because the other work, my sculpture, my, my wall murals and all that sort of thing, you know, everything was kind of shut down, you know, the, the, and, and it was just like, wow. And it, it was almost like out of nowhere came these orders and then they just kept coming. And what kind of community, I mean, I'm assuming like you, you, you used the term earlier on in the interview. I wish I could remember exactly what it was. You said, I think you said it, what was it? Extreme. Oh, extreme hobbyists. Yeah. Extreme hobbyists. What, what does that term mean to be an extreme hobbyist in terms of like how it creates a demand for your type of artwork? Well, I, for me, I think like the extreme hobbyist is the one that can afford these snakes that are thousands of dollars. So if you have thousands of dollars to spend on a snake, there's a fair chance you'll have a couple of bucks to spend on the enclosure other than, you know, a, a box with PVC pipe, you know, as a perch. So they're out there. and through the social media stuff so far i've been able to reach a fair amount um i'm going to be in this coming daytona beach reptile expo in august and i'm going to have on display my snakescape exhibit i don't think anybody has really seen anything like this you know i mean there are great variations on a theme but nothing quite like this so I think that with when when I start to include these expos, doing an expo or two or whatever a year, plus the social media, I think that all in unison is going to take take this to the next level, where I will be doing, you know, what I had said before. My goal is to just be doing snakescape exhibit work. If you had a dream commission, meaning client came in and said ron i want you to build me this like sky's the limit say someone came in with like i don't know half a million dollars what would your dream build be oh brother like could you imagine a unit that was able to incorporate a fish fish like imagine like you cut out a chunk of the amazon and you've got some arowanas swimming this long you know wide display so you've got a school you've got a couple of arowana living in this sculptured you know got vines got almost almost like a mangrove type effect a little bit and then as it goes up now you have a little bit of jungle you got vines, you got a snake, you know, you could have a, you can have a basin or something like that. That would be, that would be a wild experience to sculpt up something like that. That reminds me of, I mean, what you described would be, would be on another level, but there's a, an exhibit in the Long Island Aquarium, which has something Kind of, kind of similar. It's a, uh, it's, it's an Amazon basin exhibit, uh, like almost like like a Blackwater exhibit, but the water is actually kind of clear. 
Uh, but yeah, it's got mangroves and whatnot. And I just started thinking, I'm like, they've got this really great exhibit here, but it's kind of tucked away and you really don't get like the full, you know, bang for how impressive it actually is. Um, yeah, that would be amazing to see, uh, something like that, you know, that it was like in, larger and incorporated your techniques in terms of like, you know, having purchase for a snake and just being able to combine these two environments in a way that ended up being seamless. Oh man, it would be awesome. I mean, you know, I could see with a, a waterfall effect. When I say waterfall effect, it's not like this waterfall splashing down because you, you have to monitor the splash effect. You don't want water splashing on the inside of the glass. You know, it would just kill the exhibit. It's just an effect where I set it over there. There is a sound. There is a motion. And by spotlighting it, it just accents it. And it brings it, a, brings it to a, another level and where it creates those ripples of light. And so you'll have that. You'll have ripples of light dancing across the water, right? These ripples of light will dance across the backs of these arowanas. And then on the underside of the vines and the stuff that's on the ground, you know, on the land stop, uh, on the land part, you'll have ledges of rock with a little bit of light dancing on the underneath side as it goes up into the tree like the, the trunks of the trees and the vines. And, oh, brother, you could, you know, for just for fun's sake, you can incorporate the sound of jungle just playing on a recording, very subtle, very light, you know, just to kind of help complete the picture. So now you've got beautiful color. You've got movement. You've got the fish. You've got the snake over there. You've got light. You've got ripples of light. You've got a little bit of sound. It's like, oh, boy. And you have a beautiful exhibit that you can incorporate into what? A bookcase, entertainment center. You know, it could be a beautiful, like imagine you have a wall that is full of that and of that unit. And on either side of the unit is your bookcases. Beautiful, all, all, the, all the craftsmanship that makes all of that. And then you got a beautiful leather couch sitting in the center of the room with your reading lamp or whatever, whatever. You know what I mean? It's like your your special hideaway or your getaway for you, you know, the, the, the person that has something like this. You could read in there, you know, you're sitting in the couch or a chair and you can read or your music's on or. You know, it's at night and, and the only light that is on is the light in the enclosure, which gives it a whole other way to look at it. It's just so cool. So, yeah, I mean, that's something like that would be, that would be, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be really, really immersive, which would be pretty cool. I mean, you know, there's that, but then I would really love to build something that, was, that would just be for the arboreal like the basins and emeralds and stuff. That would be another dream where you're just creating these tree trunks and vine work that go across the span of like, oh, let's say, let's say an eight foot span. So it's eight feet wide, four feet high, and let's say three, three feet more, maybe 40 inches deep. And you created this whole jungle with 
space for these snakes to crawl around and really have a good time. You know, that would be something special as well. So we're kind of winding down to the end, and I wanted to ask you, for beginner artists, someone who wants to make a venture into, I mean, I know you do so much besides three-dimensional art. I know we've, we focused on that, but if you wanted to give advice to someone who wanted to focus on recreating nature in a three-dimensional way, sculpture or whatever media that the person chooses, what advice would you give to a young artist or, or a beginner artist looking to, um, looking to develop some skills? Well, you know, being in nature is the first because nature gives you all the answers. You know, what does it what does a tree trunk look like? How is this? This is the rot and how's the fungus grow? So when you're out in nature and you and you're seeing all of these things, you draw them. Because now you're getting that skill with your hand and your eye and you're getting it and you're getting it in your brain. You see the the you know like the uh, mushrooms crawling up like this, they, they look like that. The color of them is that. And then you go to your studio, you go home, and now you want to recreate that. You want to recreate it in color. You know, like I do studies where I do the drawing. So I get all the elements down and then I do it in color. So now I got the color. It's all there. That's it. The whole thing's been composed. And okay, now, well, what's your medium? Be it epoxy, be it styrofoam, be it whatever, whatever. Now you sculpt that piece out according to your drawing. You know, the tree trunk is here, the fallen log is there, and you, and now you're you're sculpting it up, and you're painting, you know, you're applying the epoxy, sculpting up the epoxy. You know, it, it's 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 all in stages. You know, you would start, but but as to to for the young artist, you start at the beginning. I believe like drawing in nature, painting in nature is going to give you those visuals that will help you when you. Because what are we talking about? We're talking about um, in, in using your artistic skill to develop to to create environments, these enclosures and and stuff, right? Not not a painting. Yeah, exactly. If we wanted to create. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's where you would begin in nature, drawing and painting, getting the color and then recreating what you composed. Sounds simple, but it takes time. I mean, listen, you know, I've been uh, an artist for almost 45 years creating and stuff like that you know it's like where's your passion what do you really enjoy doing you know to find that is it to you know once you get that passion to create these things you know going into the woods and and drawing it's all like oh man i can't wait to go yeah it's pretty amazing like i i'm a big proponent of like we're, we're a big art house here you know um my wife teaches art. Both my daughters are really involved in, in visual ones in visual arts. The other ones in performing arts. But I feel like being able to draw from life and recreate something is just such an important skill because it really gives you the fundamentals and the tools to be able to accomplish anything. Like I believe that having a style and expressing yourself through art and having your own, you know, your, your own style, your own look, whatnot is, is important. 
But like one of my biggest regrets was that I could never draw from life. Like I actually, I actually started out college as a fine arts major, uh-huh. but it, it just, it, it wasn't, it just wasn't for me. And a big part of it was struggling to draw from life. I couldn't master that. And for me, that was a big stumbling block because successful artists were always able to do that very, very effectively and then translate that skill into pretty much every other thing possible. Right. But when you say life, was that from a living model of, you know, a a figure standing in front of you? Or was that to, you know, how they had you do the exercises of drawing an an orange or a fruit basket or whatever, whatever? Yeah, still, still life's. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, still, it's, it's funny because you think about something so boring as a bowl of fruit. Well, it's, it's not boring. And, um, I was always, I was always really into Albrecht Durer and yes. Albrecht Durer's the, the praying hands is an incredible real life representation of, of praying hands. And, um, I, I could never master that skill. And it was one of my biggest regrets was that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I could not look at a pair of hands and recreate them from life. So yeah, everything from still lifes up to, um, you know, whatever model drawing, you know, live human models, whatever drawing, you know, yes, uh, you know, doing sketches of horses or flowers, even something, so something like that you would take for granted, something like, like a, a rose petal is incredibly involved to draw from life. Yes. Oh yeah, I mean, listen, you know, it it um it does take an, an effort, a commitment, you know, because it takes time to really acquire that skill. You know, sometimes you know, and not I, I, not everybody has that skill, you know, to get to draw exactly what they're looking at. You know, but even with that, so maybe you can't draw exactly what you're looking at, but with your own style, you could draw a really cool variation. You know, like I don't, like I said earlier, you know, I don't recreate what I see in nature. It helps feed my brain. It helps with color. It helps in composition and stuff like that. I mean, it helps in so many ways, but I'm not there trying to replicate that. It's because I did did those drawings and did those color paintings and stuff like that that I got all this information in my brain to draw from to just do my thing, you know? And that's where it's at for me. It's not it's not the exact. I mean, although as an artist with my paintings and my portraits and stuff, yes, I had to be exact. But this stuff is free. You could just, you know, you could just have, you know, I'm having fun making a branch. I mean, how do you make a branch interesting and fun? <laughs> you know, it's like, but I find a way. I just you, really get a kick out of it. You did. You found. You definitely found a way. I was. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I I thoroughly enjoy sculpting it up, the detail, the textures, the rot, the fungus, the whatever. You know, it's to me, it's just it's just so much fun. You know, and that's what drives me. It's the fun I'm having. You know, it's it's definitely not. I mean, listen, I do understand, yes, you need to make money, but money is not the motivator 
Money is not what gets me out into the woods and drawing. I get out there because I want to. You know, I just really dig it so much. Yeah, sometimes it's not even about the final product. It's about the process. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you, Like sometimes, like there have been times where I would, um, I'd spend a lot of time doing whatever it was that I was doing. I was always into um, pen and ink. Yes. And um, I, I was, I never was never really into color. Everything I did was black and white, which is, you know, again, another thing you, they kind of expect you to do color at some point in art school. But um, I'd work really hard on, on something, a, a drawing or sketch or whatever, and I'd spend an hour on it, whatever. And then at the end, I'd, I'd actually just crumple it up and throw it out. Yeah. And it wasn't even so much about what I was doing at the end product. It was really just about getting there and the artistic process of, of thinking about what I wanted to accomplish and kind of getting in that zone wherever nothing else matters. You know what I mean? Like you said, you found beauty in recreating a branch. You found fun and enjoyment in that. That's a big part yeah. of the artistic process, or at least it was to me, you know? Oh, yeah, man. You're in your own little world. Nothing else matters. And that's exactly what gets me about this type of work. I mean, it is so consuming. I mean, when you think about it, you're making these little vines, you're making this little rot, this little this, little that. Man, and all of it is intentional. None of it happens by itself or by accident. You know, a vine is placed in a specific spot for a reason, you know? And so it's, it, man, it's all, sometimes when I, when, as the project, you know, builds momentum, and now I'm in the final stages of it, man, it's all I could think about. I mean, even though I'm whatever, eating breakfast, I, I'm thinking, okay, well, don't forget when you do it this way, you got to make sure, you know, it's, it's, yes, it's all consuming. And that's one of the things I really love about it. Yeah, it's a good feeling. It definitely yes. is. Well, Ron, I want to thank you so much for really taking the time to walk us through all this. I mean, it's just, it's such an interesting and unique thing to be able to create these, these back, these backgrounds, the way that you do. I mean, it's, and the whole system that's, it's really, really incredible for, for the listeners who wanted to find out more, maybe check you out on social media or your websites. Can you share, um, share any, any outlets that you might have that people might want to uh, check out if they want to see your work? Yeah, well, um, you know, my website is snakescapes.com. The Instagram is snakescapes by Ron, all one word. Uh, and you can see all a bunch of pictures and this and that. And then you could go to those forums. And if it's something that you'd like that you're interested in, you would like to find out more about it, you could just message me. And then I'll get you my email address and then we'll start the, start the process from there. Amazing. All right, everyone. Again, I want to thank Ron for really like giving us an amazing walkthrough of the whole process in terms of what it goes, what goes into really creating a zoo quality enclosure and all the elements and everything like that. And, um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I, I really like getting into, I mean, not when we talk a lot about the, you know, the, the science of keeping frogs and, and this research and conservation, there, there's this intrinsic beauty that goes into this hobby as well. And I think it's important that 
we talk about stuff like this, and uh, I'm really happy that Ron was, you know, able to come on and share his insights because, um, you know, we we all appreciate the beauty of these things on some one level or another, and I think that what what Ron's been able to do by creating something that's just so visually stunning out of this media that is just you know unbelievable is uh, pretty amazing. So, uh, Ron, again, I, I want to thank you. It's been a it's been a great episode. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Really, yeah. I appreciate. It. All right, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Um, I got another one coming up. Uh, coming up soon. We're gonna do. Uh, you know, we're gonna kind of do a different take uh, every time we do one of these uh, these these art episodes. So, uh, yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed it, and be sure to check out the next one. It's a little bit different take. Uh, we got another great guest, and uh, we're gonna carry it on. You know, keep that flame going with the art topic, and I will catch up with you guys again next time.